It doesn't take much to look around our world today and realize that scarcity is winning. In culture, in life, in church, it seems like we're being told that we have to live by the dim light of the assumption that most things that matter are scarce. A glance at the day's news makes the case. Jobs are still way too scarce for too many. There wasn't a safe place that was scarce in Mexico and a lot of places this weekend. Food insecurity is now a word that we hear often. Justice is an endangered word in many corners of God's creation. We'll talk about racial equality, but acting on it is stunningly scarce. The abandonment of children and the abuse of women leaves us sick and wondering. Love. Now, we all love to talk about love, but a persistent narrative in our culture is that you can't just love everybody. You can't respond to everybody and their needs That just, we've got to have limits. That's just prudent. Loneliness is a thing we don't talk about much these days. Living alone, struggling alone, alone in a crowd, alone in a sanctuary, isolated with a heavy burden you don't feel you can share. Community, we're told, is scarce. Faith is scarce. At least if you believe those who will tell you that only if you live a certain exact way and believe a certain exact way and follow a certain exact path, you'll never get to God. Now stuff, we may have an abundance of stuff, but then we have to insure the stuff and we have to store the stuff and we have to rent more storage for the stuff and we have to build on to take care of the stuff, and we have to worry about our stuff getting broken and needing to update and upgrade all the stuff. Maybe stuff isn't so abundant after all. All our best intentions, all our loving aims, all our faithful service seems to run headlong into what we're told are the realities of our life and world. There's not enough of things that matter to go around. Almost 50 years ago, Duke Ellington teamed up with bass player Ray Brown to record a live performance of Ellington's recordings, recorded right in his living room. The original recording is prized among jazz fans, not only because of the legendary status of the musicians and the power of the music, but also in that living room, they put the microphone so close to these two legends that you can actually hear the sounds they make and the effort they expend to produce this music. One person described it, Ray Brown is right there across the living room fighting with the bass to get out every note. You hear his grunts. You hear Duke shifting on his chair and even breathing. This is how I feel about trusting God's promises of abundance in a world that presses in on us with scarcity. This is hard work. But then 5,000 people get fed one day by Jesus, and he smashes all those assumptions of scarcity into a million pieces. Jesus' teaching 
in this text is very simple. The world operates by the laws of scarcity. The gospel truth is abundance. The disciples come to Jesus after this long, hard day and say that the crowd should be sent away to get something to eat. They're saying in that that time is scarce, energies are scarce, compassion is scarce, resources are scarce. Look how they seek to solve that problem of scarcity. When you assume that anything is scarce, you hoard, you ration, you limit, you pinch. Jesus countered, you give them something to eat. The disciples, let them go by. Jesus, you give them something. They buy, it's a world of scarcity. You give, God's world is a place of abundance. There's an abundance of time, an abundance of energy, an abundance of compassion, an abundance of resources. Then Jesus does a simple, very important thing. He gives thanks to God for what is. Jesus knows that abundance is always present. Jesus, turning water into wine, healing the blind, healing a woman bleeding for years, healing a leper, walking on water, calming a storm, raising a man from the dead. Accounts of Jesus' miracles are abundant in the Gospels. Many, in fact, were calling Jesus a magician. Jesus, as miracle worker, was something that the disciples expected. Jesus as magician was something the crowds came out to see. But nowhere in this text does it say anything about divine intervention. This is not Jesus as magician. This story does not tell us that the loaves and fishes were magically multiplied by Jesus' blessing. This is not a miracle. This is more than a miracle. People who lived all their lives believing in the fixed laws of scarcity are taught that in God's world, abundance rules. Jesus, as he always did, filled their spiritual hunger in that crowd on that hillside. Everything else, every other thing they needed flowed from that spiritual filling. When a church fills the spiritual needs of every person, every other need that church has is taken care of. Heidi Newmark was once a Lutheran pastor uh, in the South Bronx, which may be a neighborhood that's a model of scarcity in America. The leaders of her congregation included former addicts and undocumented aliens and the unemployed and the recently homeless. During Holy Week one year, the church decided to reenact the passion play, the whole sweep of Holy Week. For Palm Sunday, they marched around their desolate block, waving palms and shouting Hosanna. They got about halfway around and completely uncoordinated, they ran into a street demonstration against police brutality. The two kind of mixed for a minute. Some people got so alarmed they called the police, adding even more drama to the scene. The procession finally managed to get back in the church and the passion play continued. Jesus was tried, condemned, executed. And then the play had women coming to the tomb on Easter morning. Christ is risen. True to the script, some voiced disbelief. 
But the play then called for three members of the congregation to stand up from where they were and to give testimony to the power of the resurrection. They were to begin, I know that Christ is alive. Angie was the first one to stand up. I know that Christ is alive, Angie said, because Christ is alive in me. And then she told how she was abused by her father, how she fell into despair and alcoholism, how she became HIV positive. But then she responded to the hospitality and welcome of that church, and she started going to worship and then to a Bible study. And bit by bit, she rose from the grave of her life. Then the two other witnesses rose and told similar stories. I know that Christ is alive. At that point, the play was supposed to move on to other things because it couldn't, because after those three people talked, first one person, then another, then another, then another, all rose up and said, I know that Christ is alive because Christ is alive in me. The loaves and fishes didn't get multiplied by magic. They did not get multiplied by a miracle Jesus performed. Jesus brought God's boundless love alive in their midst. Jesus taught them about how dependence on God beats striving and control anytime. Jesus didn't try to manage the crowd. He led them to trust God. And he arranged them in small groups. Did you notice that? Years ago, the great stage actress Dorothy McGuire was appearing on Broadway in Tennessee Williams' The Night of the Iguana. Just before curtain time on a Friday night, the theater was disturbed by the shrill voice of a woman in the audience crying, start the show, start the show, I want to see Dorothy McGuire. The woman was clearly disturbed, and after a stunned silence, some in the audience turned on her, sit down, shut up. The, the theater management came and tried to, to calm her down, but she pulled away, shrieking, all I want to do is see Dorothy McGuire, and I'll leave. Suddenly, through the curtains, Miss Dorothy McGuire appeared, walked across the stage, down the aisle, and calmly walked over to this disturbed woman. She spoke quietly to her for a long time, and then hugged her. The woman who had recoiled before when anyone had touched her got up from her seat, drew close to Miss McGuire, and together they walked toward the exit. Before they left the theater, Dorothy McGuire paused, turned around to the audience, and with tenderness said, I would like to introduce you to another fellow human being. Jesus got them into small groups, face-to-face, eye-to-eye with each other's needs. And everybody who had something tucked away in their cloak, I mean, there weren't a lot of 7-Elevens around in the first century, they began to share face-to-face-to-face with one another. Everyone dug deep into their pockets to find what they could do. Scarcity loves practicing scarcity anonymously. Fear doesn't like it when we call people by name. Abundance cannot flourish with an us versus them mentality. Possum Trot is a very small town in, in East Texas. Most of the 600 residents live in double wides and they either work at the flooring plant in town or at the Tyson chicken plant a town over. 
In 1997, something happened in Possum Trot that changed that town forever. Donna, the wife of the town's pastor, was grieving her own mother's death. She was at home one morning cleaning up the kitchen when grief, as it can do, just overwhelmed her. Lord, she cried out, I can't take this anymore. In frustration, Donna threw down her dish towel, went outside, and sat in a rocking chair under a tree. And while she rocked in the cool autumn breeze, tears rolled down her face, Donna heard the strangest thing. She heard the voice of God. Donna, think of all those children who don't have what you had in a mother, I want you to give them that. Really, Donna wondered out loud, talking to God now, how? All the kids in Possum Trot, from what she could tell, were doing okay. God kept speaking into her grief, into her doubt, this time giving her clear instructions, adopt kids from foster care. Donna knew next to nothing about adoption or foster care, but she hurried into the house, called an 800 number, signed up for foster parent classes in a town an hour away. Her husband and her sister Diane thought she'd gone crazy, but she convinced them to come to the classes too, and what they learned there overwhelmed them. They had no idea how bad it was for kids in the foster care system. Most of them there, because of abuse, were passed from house to house, foster home to foster home. It was tragic. Something had to be done. Donna's sister, Diane, was matched up with a foster kid, a four-year-old boy named Nico. The first Sunday, Diane brought Nico to church. The congregation just gathered around the sweet boy. Who would give up this little man, someone asked. Nico just hugged Diane's neck so tight. He's all mine, she said teasingly. Y'all go get your own. Well, here's what's crazy. Just about every family in that church did exactly that. In all, 23 families signed up to take classes so they could be foster parents and adopt. When all was said and done, 76 kids were adopted by those 23 families in that town of less than 600. It hasn't always been easy. Money was really tight before. It's even tighter now. Some of the wounds in those kids were so deep they are still healing. But despite all the challenges, almost all of those 20, 76 kids have graduated from high school or working full jobs or studying in school or raising kids of their own. When asked about what happened in Possum Trot, Donna likes to say, some people say this is a miracle. If it's a miracle, it's a two-way miracle. We gave them all the love we had. We got more love back. This is a stingy world, we're told, all the time, where forgiveness, where love, where resources, where abundant grace are supposed to be so scarce, but not here, not here, not in any place that is touched with God's abundant love. Abundance, extravagant abundance, is the only way God chooses to work. Jesus knew that if he filled everyone spiritually, made them alive and grateful for God in their lives, every other need they had would be taken care of. Is that magic? Is that a miracle? And so Jesus goes to this hillside to teach all this crowd. There's so much hunger. 
Woe to us that things are so scarce. But what have you got, said Jesus? What have you got? In my first few wonderful weeks with you all, many things stand out. Two of them may be relevant to this text. First, you are an amazing group of gifted, faithful, loving, insightful, caring disciples. And there seems to be a narrative that I keep hearing, at least in the corners of our life together, about what we lack. There used to be more people and more money, and the budget used to be bigger. There used to be what we have now lost. But you know, God did not deal with that crowd on that hillside by first making them review all the trend lines of their recent history presented to them in an Excel spreadsheet. It didn't come up. All Jesus asked was, what have you got? It may not feel like much. It may not look like there's gonna be enough. But God greets you and me every day with the astounding, reliable claim, you are loved beyond your wildest imagination. You are forgiven before you even think about praying for forgiveness. You may feel as if you're lost in the crowd of hungry, tired people, and you don't know how in the world you will get filled up. But no, there's a feast here. There's abundance here. God will provide for you and provide for this church and fill us up in every single need we have. You don't need to live as if we have to parcel out God's blessing with an eyedropper. Do we dare live like that together? Wonder of wonders, Jesus promises there will be enough. Luke says all of them ate and were filled. There was enough. No, I'm wrong. It says there was more than enough. Twelve baskets left over. More than enough. In the hardest, bleakest situation you can imagine, there was more than enough. Hear it. Believe it. Expect it. Expect it in the world. Expect it in your life that forgiveness and love and resources and hope are plentiful in your life here and now and in this congregation. Expect it from God, expect it from one another. Expect that you will live today doling out God's love like the 12 baskets that were left over. This is an extravagant way to live. It's not very prudent. Some people would say it's foolish. Jesus calls it faithful. It's the only way God chooses to work. Amen.